Hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of Off Mic, Off the Record. I'm your host, Aaron Bentley. Joining me this week, uh, gentleman from Clyde, Texas, Mr. Jordan Tyler Haynes. What's up, bud? What's going on, man? It is so good to be here. Hey, Thank man. you. I'm glad you made it out here. A little warm. It is very warm. And you said you've got to do some work on the AC. Yeah, I've got to fix my AC this evening or in the morning, or I may not make it back to Clyde. <laughs> That's... That that two sixty five seventy five eighty five AC works up until about this time of year. Yes, and then this time of year, it's like a convection oven. Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. You can you can roll the windows down. You can do whatever you want. It's not. You're just gonna sit and be miserable. And you gotta have a sweat towel over your shoulder. To oh yeah, dab oh, the yeah. forehead. I'm uh, very experienced in that. In the in my younger years, I had an eighty six F one fifty beast of a vehicle. Uh, AC did not. It would come on, but mm-hmm. the, the blower fan, and couldn't afford to replace it, just was on low. Okay. So it, it's just enough to tease you if you leaned in and exactly. put a cheek against the vent. Yeah, I was riding here with uh, with like my hands just right up on the vents, just kind of lying to myself like it was helping. And I'm sure that lie worked for a couple minutes. It it did, but, you know, two hours in, you're okay. This is a little old. All right, this ain't working. Makes you only want to drive after 11 p.m. and before 5 a.m. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I waited as late as possible to drive into my show last night. As the sun's going down, he's headed to the show. <laughs> hey, guys, we're going we're gonna to check on the fly, and I'll be there right at showtime. See you in a second. What is the best part about ordering gear for you online from Sweetwater? The best part, uh, honestly, I think my favorite part is just kind of waiting for it to come in. The anticipation like a kid on Christmas. I I love that. I'm a fan of the candy. Oh, see, I never, I give all my Sweetwater candy to McKenna. Okay. Every single bit. I'm, I'm not a big candy person. I love sweet stuff. I love desserts, but not candy. I just throw the bag to her. I love it when you have multiple boxes come in because it's multiple It's all, bags. yes. And it's yes. always a good variety. It's throwing some bit of honey. Here we are doing a plug for Sweetwater and they're not sponsoring right. me, but it's okay. They get my money anyway. Right. They should sponsor both of us. I would definitely go for that. We're over here talking about how hot it is, sipping coffee uh, in the middle of the day. It's just, I don't know. It's one of those things. It is. It's part of it, you know? So with you being a uh, customer of Sweetwater, and me being a customer because I do this, you do it for a different reason, not just because you're a musician, but you also run a studio. Yes. And that keeps uh, Sweetwater's bills paid. It keeps their lights on for sure. <laughs> How did you get into having an, your own studio? So I've loved the idea of engineering and producing records since as long as I've wanted to be a musician. But I never saw it as something that would happen because it's so much money to get into. You you, you think because you see people that are running like hundred thousand dollar Trident boards and mm-hmm. and Neve consoles and ridiculous microphones, and so it always just seemed like a pipe dream when I was a kid. Whenever I was first starting out, and then I kept playing music and got to be around that sort of stuff more often. And I realized, oh well, you don't need all of that, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't need the crazy consoles or ridiculous microphones. Like, how much can we do with a, a two-channel interface and a 57? And I start to realize, okay, there there are ways to get there and to experiment with it. And I put together a budget 
for uh, for what an album would cost. This is before I put Deadbolt out a couple of years ago. No, <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. I'm good. And I was looking at what it would take to record and have it engineered at places. And I knew that I didn't have the stuff to record it at the time. But I thought if I could take this first step into getting into engineering and mixing and stuff like that, what if I was to record the record somewhere and then mix it down myself Okay, and do mastering stuff myself? Then I could only just kind of buy the gear I needed for a small chunk, you know, get the digital workstation stuff and the mixing stuff, some good monitors and start there. Okay. And so that was kind of my, uh, that was me opening the door for myself to get into it. Interesting. Um, and I like how you said you don't have to have the gear. And that's the one thing I tell everybody having those badass boards are mm-hmm. awesome it's, because it's great. You can, there's so much you can do with those, the sidecars, the preamps, having all that. You can go as far as you want. There is nothing wrong with starting out home studio style. Yeah. There's so many in the last seven years, there's so much that has just gone onto the market that makes life simple. People would be surprised how much you can mix down with the free version of GarageBand. Yes. You can get in depth with that. I mix every episode with the free version of GarageBand. <laughs> do you really? Mix and master with That's that. That's awesome. Now I do pay for a service that does some mastering post. Yeah. After what I do, because I'm a novice. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So sometimes I get in there and I'm like, oh, this sounds good. And then I get an email back from him going, hey, this yeah, one good. Send me, the, send me the raw raw material. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But um, the digital age, I think about the digital age. So we're, we're going to, I'm going to age myself quite a bit and then we're going to talk about it. Nothing beats the sound of good analog. Correct. Nothing. There, you will never compete with that. And to get a good analog sound, that's where the money is at. Absolutely. You have yeah. to spend a lot of money. The boards that you were referring to, uh, if you're going to do it on tape, how you're going to multi-track it. But for digital, especially starting out, you can shop around. You need to do mm-hmm. your research because there's some interfaces, like you said. You you, you can't just do uh, on a cheap microphone that you go get at Best Buy. Yeah, like put a little bit into it. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, unfortunately, you know, if you have a budget of $75, you're probably not going to... I, I don't know. You know, I take that back. I'm I'm really not going to limit anybody who would be listening to this and wanting to do that. Because if you have $75 and you want to buy $75 worth of gear and make a record, please do it. But don't expect it to sound produced. Yes. Like, it, just know what you're going to get and make that sound good. Mm-hmm. Just don't expect it to sound like, you know, something that's been ran through cranked API preamps into $15,000 worth of compression and done by people who have had 30 plus years of experience. Very true. That is a, that's very hard, but yeah, uh, even I'll tell you, uh, was it cat hasty did the uh, bathroom recordings? Oh my Lord. And they're awesome. And they're brilliant. Yes. Uh, there's some, there's some good sounds and I will tell you, I'm a huge fan of the work tape becoming popular again. Yeah. For years, my favorite way to get music is when somebody sends me a, you know, just a mix or first, mm-hmm. first pass mix. I like that just as much as I do full production. It's awesome. And work tapes. I, I, there's a thing, and this is where I like to explain to the listeners that aren't in the industry. So when you do a first pass, you'll have what's called scratch. Scratch could be vocals. It could be guitar. It could be drum. Scratch means this is just the first 
the birth of what we think this is going to sound like. And you can have, and that's when you hear people talk about scratch tracks. And uh, you can jump in whenever you want if I'm completely wrong, because remember, oh, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not facts-based. Yeah. I'm not fact-based at all. Um, and I love hearing those because that gives me the infancy, the growth of it. And there's sometimes those work tapes, man, just come out magical. Yes. Um, I had an artist, I won't say who, recently, because we can't really talk about this tune, mm-hmm. shared me a tune that was just recorded on the iPhone in the house keys in this artist and that was it and it is magical i can't i can't imagine i want to hear a produced version of it mm-hmm. with the strong vocals with the the keys sounding true but there's just something magical about when you hear that for the birth of an idea oh, yeah. that way and you can do that man they make microphones little sure mics for an iphone mm-hmm. if you're going to do work tape you can go get that that best yeah. buy and it's awesome throw that on your phone and do it the it sounded magical because the magical elements, the magic does not come from gear. No, the magic doesn't come from a studio. The magic comes from the song and the performance. Correct. Period. N- nothing else. You get some cool sounds. You get some cool vibes. You get, you know, the the commercial elements, if you want to call it that, or in the non-commercial elements. Mm-hmm. But the magic of a song and performance is it's that the song and the performance. You're absolutely right. The the, the gifted artistry that the artist is bringing to this idea. Here's what I think it should be. Yes. Um, I will never knock the fact of having top, top end producers that know how to take an idea and make it excel. I think, you know, this isn't me knocking the, the business at all. Cause I think there is a time and a place for every single person who's involved, a solid studio engineer, an amazing producer who can take that idea and just polish it a little bit. Yes. And even, and producers can add their own magic too. And I'm yes. not saying that they don't because good Lord, I have heard a lot of projects start to finish that before the, you know, the producer gets involved and it's like, Oh, we are on a different level. We just took this song somewhere completely different. And this is amazing. Now it's magical, but you can't polish a turd. No, you, the magic has to be there from the beginning. So there is, um, I'll, I'll be very vague on this. We had the opportunity, my wife and I to go into a studio in Nashville on music row top in studio and got to learn from the owner of this studio and the engineer. And I've talked about this on here many times and probably one of the greatest experiences of my life. Cause I got to see two people who were at the top end of the game how they they already know what the tropes to miss are what what doesn't work yes. what does work and just being able to go in and have an appreciation that they were willing to teach me some complete stranger mm-hmm. that they knew from a friend of a friend and said let me show you a few things let me show you a few tricks i'm not going to give you everything yeah and i will tell you that while we were in there the artist that had just uh finished up and was doing the initial i would say probably the the last mix before going to mastering was not good. Was not really? good. But I mean, there's no one thing I can put on it because it's always it's uh, what's good and bad is always in the ear of the listener. And I just I didn't appreciate. I found value in what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't find appeal. I get that. And to be able to hear what this engineer and this producer were able to make a finished copy of was unbelievable oh yeah some of those dudes are wizards man and i mean i was just blown away and I was, dudettes i've seen plenty of 
female producers and engineers that will blow your mind. Yeah, these two, this pair, uh, the owner is a woman and the engineer was a guy. He would, I think I'm gonna say he was like on the road with Motley Crue for like 20 years okay. as their front of house. Okay. And she, uh, she was a noted singer songwriter who played Bluebird, has had her hand in lots of songs and had been a producer owning her own studio for 20 plus years. True magic. Yeah. And the most genuine people ever. I mean, these two, Complete strangers. Again, my wife and I walk into this studio, sit down. We're there for a couple hours and just the hospitality, the openness, the willing to share blew me away. And I think that's yes. important when people can share knowledge and not hoard it. Uh, I think that helps. And especially when, like what you were talking to alluded to, to circle back around that everybody should start someplace and they should not be afraid to start somewhere. Absolutely. I think if that person who was deciding to make a home studio for the first time, don't be afraid to go find a, a producer, an engineer, and see if you can just go sit in. Just yeah. sit. I have learned so much more from just sitting in with engineers and producers and just watching or being a part of those projects, but not just letting myself be produced. At the same time, I will just learn everything that they're telling me. Like, I'm not just taking that in for this one project. I am taking that in for the rest of my life. And whenever they are producing the other members of the band on their parts or whenever they're getting into mastering and mixing and, and routing, even just sitting there like a fly on the wall and just trying to be as much of a sponge as possible. So much better than just going out and trying to research it. Mm -hmm. What's that adage? You can learn more hands on a book can teach you half a way, but you have to be hands on to get the rest of the way. Is that yes. how that goes? I, yeah, that sounds right to me. I, if not, I made it up. But I'm sure I've heard that somewhere. It, it's it's great. And I, I've been blessed with many opportunities over my life to sit in several studios, big and small, big and small. And I always took something away. I learned. Mm -hmm. I gained knowledge. I gained experience at some point from those people. And I, I tell you what, I, I know everybody has a story. Everybody. I've never had a bad experience with any single producer or engineer. I've learned something from every mm -hmm. one of them, even live shows. Yeah. I have had uncomfortable experiences with produ with producers. That's going to happen. But That's human. at the end of the day, you know, it was like, like we were butting heads, man. It was like two rhinos just coming across at each other. And the end product was so good. Mm -hmm. And the things that I came away with to put into tracks, because he produced in a style that I really don't usually, you know. But I learned so much from watching somebody do it different than I do it because I've only been doing it a couple of years. Who's to say that I'm right by any means? Oh, yeah. Learned so much from him. Even if I don't do what he does as a whole, there's always going to be a couple of elements that I can take with me anywhere. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. It's, good, it's a good starting discussion right there. I'm a, I'm a fan of those kind. Um. What has been your, and I'm not going to ask a particular artist, what has been like the most memorable moment for you producing or recording or engineering? Not your music for somebody else. Oh man, there's so many that are, uh, so many really cool things happen that I don't know that I can pinpoint just one. And I, I would love to because it's, I'm trying to think of the one that everybody's going to love, but I have so many rolling through my brain right now. It doesn't have to be the best. It's just it's, one that the first one that comes to mind. We'll be back after a quick break.
Is real music dying? What even is real music and who are we to judge that? Well, my father is a lifelong musician and together we've been making music for over a decade. In our new podcast, we dare to ask the urgent, the weird and the deep questions. And we have a lot of wild stories to tell. No matter what genres you enjoy, whether you're a musician, a producer or a listener, we invite you to discover unconventional perspectives on music. So tune in and go follow Mad Makings of Music wherever you listen to podcasts. Let me, this is not maybe like, oh my God, this is some next level stuff. But we were down at Yellow Dog. I was working with Garrett Bryan and the Traveling City Committee. Okay. I was uh, playing guitar on that record and doing some background vocals. And on an album that's it's unreleased, it's going to be the next album from them. There's just like a real gritty rocks track. And we were sitting around in the control room, listening back, trying to think of, you know, some little flavors, some little magic. To magic, add. yeah. And Dave Percival, he was producing the project. And by the way, have you ever been to Yellow Dog? I've never been. Dude, you've got to go. I, it's like this little magical plot of land on the Blanco River that just everything that happens is an inspiration. I know many, many albums that have come out of there that I've listened to have just been phenomenal. Yeah, it's great. And we're sitting around there trying to find this like little magic thing because at that point, you don't need much. You don't want to do too much. Some flavor. And Dave says, reach back into that little toolbox over at the back of the control room, second or third drawer down, and somebody's over there, and they reach for it, and they grab it. And it's like this old, like the 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 earpiece from an old rotary-style telephone. Okay. And it had a quarter-inch jack on it. Okay. And he said, go in there. And we sent, uh, we sent Ivy Byram in there, actually, to do it. She's an incredible vocalist and singer. I just produced a song for her. And we sent her in there to do an octave up track on just one verse. And it sounded, you know, it sounds like an old telephone. It's an old blown out little yeah. microphone. And it just sounds so like, not creepy is not the right word. It just comes at you like out of nowhere. Like it's an old radio sitting there in the background. Yeah. Old, screaming. At old lo-fi. And that was so cool to, for Dave just to be like, hey, go pull out that old telephone and sing through this old telephone. And stuff like that, man, that's the stuff that really gets to me. It's not, there are so many times and people think this is what would be a memorable experience is like when somebody has that vocal take, that's just, oh my God, it's so good. I get to work with a lot of really awesome people. That happens a lot. You know what I mean? The people that I get to work with are so awesome that it is almost every day that somebody does something that is mind blowingly awesome. And I am blessed to be around those people. But to me, when somebody's like, go sing through a telephone, man, and see what it sounds like, that's what's awesome to me. You know, honestly, I think that's the first time I've ever heard that usage. I mean, I'm red mic, things like that, you know. Yeah. But never through a telephone. And I've seen some pretty cool things happen. Uh, I was at a studio session 14 years ago with a friend of mine who's uh, an artist here locally. And we were trying to get. I say we, I was just in there and the producer was trying to get this very specific, not like a washboard sound, mm-hmm. but similar to it. And like, we couldn't put our fingers on it. And so we're out 
going and looking and trying to find something because it was like we wanted this metallic metal on metal kind of a sound found like the doorway to an old pet carrier yeah and ran a lighter from the top to the bottom of it metal side and it was like that and it was the perfect sound and i was just blown away because i just went into an oscillation booth you know i don't know mic and just went one time looped it and it was perfect Man, just that's so cool. Weird things, and the producer had to just like, "Hey, go look," like you just said, and reach back and this just came to mind. And we were like, "Okay, whatever," because mm-hmm. I mean, we tried all kinds of different things, you know. Because there was a washboard in there, and we were just trying to. And it was just a unique sound that he was like, "Okay, it needs this." And I mean, the percussionist was like coming up with all kinds of ideas. Yeah. It was top end percussionist, you know, a true studio musician who was in there doing percussions. And I mean, this is like studio guy, mm-hmm. like big time studio guy. And uh, he just was racking his brain, and the producer goes, "Hey, try this!" And dude, open it wide up. Man, you, you've got to meet Taylor Behringer that plays drums for me and for McKenna and for the Traveling City Committee. He's the kind of guy. He, he's like my favorite drummer to pull into the studio anyway. But when it comes to like auxiliary tracks, he will just sit in there behind the drum set and just start looking around the room. He'll be like, "Let me grab this box of guitar picks and." You know, and he, he'll just start messing with everything with his hands that he can until he finds the perfect sound. Whether I've seen a pill bottle with a rag wrapped around it because the particular pills in it were too sharp on it. And then he'll wrap a rag around it to get it darker or stuff like that. Just experimenting in every single way to get the right percussive sound. And he, he's not afraid to just do stuff. We did a live stream where he played pots and pans. Nice. Like, <laughs> it's back around to the thing. You don't have to have a $5,000 Mapex kit. Play pots and pans. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, stuff like that fascinates me. And I think it goes back to my childhood. Uh, I did a summer course when I was in fifth, sixth grade. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we, it was a course taught by... Don't give me the line who. I mean, this is, we're talking 80s when yeah. this happened. And it was about, it was a whole summer class. And it was like this thing that uh, the city had put on where you could go take these auxiliary courses and learn stuff. I mean, as a fifth or a sixth grader, what fifth or sixth grader wants to do extra work? But the courses mm-hmm. were um, tradition, this was called traditional radio broadcast. And it was with a speech class that I did. And by speech, I mean like uh, plays, kind of a speech, like acting. Well, this class was talking about how they used to do radio performances in the 20s and 30s. So we were in there learning the diff- those kinds of tricks that they would do whenever they would do radio programs. Because, you know, back before you had the television, you, mm-hmm. every, you, radio shows, it was yes. a drama. And like the, how they would come up with the sounds. And this guy evidently had studied this. And he was retired. And so his job was during the summer, he would teach kids how to recreate that. Wow. And at the finished product, and I don't know if this even exists. I know my grandmother who's passed away, she had a copy of it or my dad had a copy of it. They did and gave us cassette recordings of us doing an episode of The Shadow, a radio episode of The Shadow. Mm-hmm. That was the end of it. Like after the summer program is because you did the speech course where you learned how to like talk on the radio and you could be like this. Oh, yeah. And then you got to do the sound effects. And so everybody got a part in it. Really? And this guy just recorded and here's your... WKOB presents The Shadow. 
Something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Come on in. Man. Yeah, see, you know, kind of like that. Yeah, just like Foley type stuff. Exactly. But the whole, you, you, there's nothing visual. It's all Foley. It's, it's voice 100%. and Foley. It's, that's it. You just have noise to play with. Uh-huh. And that's, that's awesome. And I'm sure it was a train wreck because we were fifth and sixth graders. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I mean, I don't know that I'd want to listen to it again, but I mean, yeah. it was just a cool experience because I can look back on it and remember, I don't know if that's where my love for music came about. Um, who knows? Maybe, man. Maybe. You never know. So we did talk, we talk, we've talked a lot about you being a producer, but you are also a musician in your own right. You are an artist and your most recent release was through the pain. And you, instead of doing that as the band release, you did that as an independent under your name. Yes. Not, uh, under the kitchen choir name, which friends, make sure you look up Jordan Tyler Haynes, not Jordan Tyler. We just had this discussion ahead of time. I think there's 36 artists I found. <laughs> there's that was a lot. Jordan Tyler. The very first one was a progressive hip hop. Uh, mumble rap. Oh, that was also me. Damn it. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I should have listened to it. I mean, I'm not oh, denying man. that could be something you did. I just, it, the picture no, did not look like you. That's he was not about, something I could do. He was about seven foot tall and skinny and you played in the NBA. So I also cannot do that. I can't look tall or skinny either. Yeah, no. <laughs> I can look tall if I want to, but I ain't never looking skinny. Mm-mm. Nope, nope, me neither. So uh, let's let's kind of let's kind of dive into that song. What what was what's some of the bones to that for you? Oh man, I remember the day I wrote it. I was in a recording session uh, playing guitar for a friend of mine, Sam Watson, down at Stone Creek Sound, and they were finalizing drum tracks. So I was out on the patio, and. Uh, we were all just kind of sitting on the porch, smoking, doing whatever. They were like, there were four of us out there, everybody doing their own thing. And I had that guitar part, you know, just that's going through the whole thing in my head. It had been stuck in my head for a long time. And I was waiting to do something with it. And I remember I was sitting in front of the window that was right next to the drum kit while they were working inside. And so I'm hearing these drums and I turn and look back at the drummer. And then I looked in front of me, and I was like, through the pain, okay. like the window pane. Yeah. And I just kind of started going with that, I guess. Uh, I'll just keep watching through the pain is kind of where that started. And I was like, hmm, if I wanted to be really, really cool, I could, like, you know, talk about a window pane and, like, physical pain or emotional pain. A little double on time. Yeah, that. you know. I love double meanings on that. So with you saying that, and I'm glad you kind of went there because the follow-up question. Are you a melody first guy or a lyric first guy? Or does it depend? I mean, it always changes. It's whatever comes to my mind first. Um, I don't really find myself lately. I used to, and I want to get back into it, but sitting down and saying, I am going to write a song right now. Uh, Usually it's just either a melody or words. I guess it's usually words that come first. I'll have that pondering in my head. You know, I'll change my answer. It's more than more often than not, it's words first. Because okay. I like to work out of a notebook a lot of times. And that'll start to come through me. And it's usually just a few words that I then get to decide how do I want to sculpt around that. Okay. So this was just kind of a one-off for you then that you had a melody it, in mind. Actually, it's pretty rare that that's how that happened. Well, that's pretty that's pretty special then that you had that melody or that guitar part, that, that lick. Yeah, in and your- it needed something. Uh 
Yeah, I uh, very much enjoy a lot of times. I will write a song and not touch a guitar. Okay. You know, I'll be thinking about maybe some chordal stuff in my head, and I might put music to, like, the first verse when it's done. You know, and I've always got some kind of music in my head. It's just my nature. There's always something going on musically in there. Some chord progression or melody. But I really enjoy a lot of times just sitting there with a notebook. Like, I didn't have a guitar with me when I wrote Through the Pain. I was just sitting there silent on the porch looking at a notepad, and I just had that melody kind of in my head, but I like to just go through it and write it as if it were a poem. Could this stand alone if there were no music with it? That's my best, That's my biggest judge of a song. Okay. Would I still enjoy this without the music? I think um, there's different schools of thought on that. Nobody, there is no formula to write a wrong oh, and how no. to, to write a song. There's no rules to music. Uh, I think what you went to was something that I subscribe to very much. I am very much a poetry guy. Uh, yes. I like to say until a melody is put to it, it's strictly poetry. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm the most simplistic writer uh, on schemes. A, A, B, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, C, A, B, C. Real simple. Maybe some mid rhymes here and there, but not often. And uh, I'm very much a slant rhyme guy. Okay. We all are. <laughs> True. Yeah. Slant rhymes is where it's at. And then, I don't know. Uh, slant rhymes, I, I guess that's the easy way out sometimes, mm-hmm. but sometimes you get some really cool stuff. Um, what was it? Uh, Eminem talking about he did find a rhyme for orange. Yes, rhyming orange and, you know. Porin, porridge, door porridge, hinge. door hinge, yes. And all those. And if it works, it works. I don't know if I. That's a little bit of a stretch <laughs> for me. That is a bit of a stretch, but, you know. He he was in an in an interview and they were like, "Can you rhyme with orange?" And so I don't I mean, blame him. Like, Let, I will do it for you if you ask me to dance. I will do it. That's where it's at. Don't awesome. test me. I am Eminem. <laughs> I am Eminem for a reason. And he did. I mean, and that, and that was cool. I think because I think the interpretation. And again, that's the view of the artist. That's the interpretation. That's the simplistic view outside person looking in because you never know what's going on in a person's mind. And I'm sure he has somebody who's that prolific of a rhymer, which if mm-hmm. anybody can be like, oh, I hate rap music. I don't like him. Stop. Okay. Right. He is an artist. 100% in the sense an artist. He is, he makes art. Yes. You don't have to appreciate it to respect it. Uh, I do listen to it because his, some of his rhymes are just freaking top notch. Oh, Yes. I'm a, I'm a fan. Any rhyming is not easy. Anybody can do little little, you know, door floor those kind of rhymes. But yeah. some of the stuff that he does and some of these other guys, I'm just like, where, how? First of all, did you arrive at that? And secondly, can you do it again? They generally can. Oh yeah, I really admire that about him, and I try to do that as much as I can in my songwriting. Anytime I see the door open to try to do something like that, you know, get really intense on the rhymes. Uh, Rhyming and alliteration are like my two favorite things to to really keep me going. Drive through. Yes. Awesome. So we talked about the single. Do you want to play it or do you got another one in mind you want to play starting out? I mean, I can play that for sure. It's up to you. It's a short little tune. Uh, But yeah, the the keen eared out there will notice it only has one verse. And I was always uh, a little insecure about that, I guess, until just the other day. Whenever uh, I was listening to a Merle Haggard tune, uh, if we make it through December, that song only has one verse. And I had never noticed that. 
Silver Wings. See, sometimes you just need one verse. Mm-hmm. But I was so inse- I was so insecure to put out a song with just one verse, even though I said everything I needed to say. I said everything I wanted to say for sure. And I felt like adding more to it would have just, would have been fluff. I got you. Um, so yeah, you want to hear? Sure. <clears throat> shades of black and staring in a grayscale light lifts my soul up from beneath my feet to get the nerve to step inside would feel like a plea of defeat Your pitiful eyes Show not your mercy and grace Warm your heart Open up the blinds And I'll just keep watching through say you don't need any more on that yeah you know that's all i wanted to say that's all i needed to say yeah man i dig that oh i love that and seeing the strip down like that's pretty fun yeah i used to really hate doing that and then i just had to do it feels so weird when half the song's a guitar solo and it's just me and a guitar like there is there's no rhythm section to hide behind this is all just me and the notes 
You got you got to be right there in front. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. that's right. That's uh, that's impressive. And I was just admiring the guitar there. Um, I'm, oh, a, I'm no. a Strat fan. <laughs> I'm a fan of a Strat. It's uh, how long you had that one, <laughs> Aaron? This guitar belongs to McKenna Kazowski. Okay. Um, actually, this has become my number one gigging electric, and it is McKenna Kazowski's first ever electric guitar. Interesting. Yeah, th- this is the first electric guitar she had. Um, she got it before the telly that she now plays yeah. all the time. And uh, I'm just glad she got that Telecaster because I fell in love with this thing. It's just a Squire classic vibe, nothing fancy. Yeah, no, it, it's just what um, it is. No work has been done to it. I've given it a setup, and I really enjoy it. It's got the old school kind of neck profile, the old school tuners. And I don't know. I was really wanting to get a Strat. And she remind, or I asked her, like, hey, do you still have that strat you told me about? And she was like, yeah. And she brought it up. And I've been using it ever since. Man, I dig it. It's just, I like a classic guitar. No fluff. Yeah. That, that's all this is, man. Like, made in, pretty sure it's, made, yeah, made in China. Nothing fancy. You know, nope. mass produced. There was no luthier sitting here looking and tweaking things. This is a block of wood with a few pieces of metal on it. And I get to lay into it. You say that, that it's a block of wood with some metal, but isn't it more than that? Well, it is. You know, it's actually two blocks of wood. They screw the neck onto it. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, any it really is. Instruments. Um, okay, so I've, I've heard this theory, uh, and you can tell me if you believe it. I've heard sometimes that instruments find an owner, and sometimes mm-hmm. an owner finds an instrument. And it doesn't matter that you could play the same, like you said, a, a Squire Strat. You could play 10 different Squire Strats, but there's always one. Yes, that is honestly very true. That it doesn't matter until that guitar or that instrument finds the owner and the owner finds the instrument. Mm-hmm. It can just be wood and metal and plastic and whatever. Yeah. And I really feel like, you know, maybe. All of the guitars that I have that I play have found me uh, because most of them, or I guess vice versa, most of them are like cheaper guitars. I play a bunch of Epiphones. I've got three Epiphone Les Pauls that are on rotation. Just, you know, Chinese mass-produced guitars, but they all feel so right to me. And I don't know if it's from having them, you know, and getting used to them. I don't know if it's something that I do in the way that I play them and maybe giving something into them, whether it be energy or the way that I push into the guitars and they kind of mold to me physically. Or if those guitars were just meant for me, was that the one in the 275,000 guitars that were made out of that factory on that week or whatever? That one just happened to be mine. I don't know what it is, but I was thinking about this the other day. They're super cheap guitars that most people wouldn't like, and a lot of people would just turn their noses up to. But to me, they feel like they're at home. Okay. Thank you. No, that's exactly what I was looking for, because um, I have uh, one acoustic. Uh, my son's got an acoustic here, but I have one acoustic that was handed down to me from my stepdad, and it is nothing special. Mm-hmm. It's not a name brand. The neck has got a slight bow in it. It's got a little bit of a high action. Um, 
your G chord's going to come out about every third tune mm-hmm. just because it's, but there's something about that guitar that feels right. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I think there's a lot of it. And, and we can get halfway spiritual into that because it's some, it's somewhat of a spiritual thought process, not religious, but spiritual that there is a connection there. I think, uh, you have to have the right instrument to be able to make magic. I mean, obviously a good artist, a good guitarist, a good, you know, can pick up an instrument and play it, but I think it takes something special. Yeah. You don't want to have to, well, you don't want to have to work, you know? Okay. Yes. To, to play it. You know, it won't, you. you have to have it to feel right. That doesn't mean like I play with higher action than most people do. This guitar has the lowest action of any amount that I play. I like to put, effort into it at times but i don't want to have to work there's some guitars that you pick up i have picked up custom shop gibsons that i play them and i'm having to mentally work that's what i was looking for you don't want to have to mentally work to to get the notes right and it's so weird with and with other guitars it's just like there what's your opinion on the fender acoustic sonic guitar (laughs) I think it's kind of ridiculous personally. Okay. Um, but I know people that love them. And why would I put down something that they love to make music with? I would never own one. I've played them. And I, you know, I think they, I think they're too, the wrong brand of weird for me. I like weird stuff and they are weird and that's cool. It's cool to be weird, but that's not my brand of weird. Okay. You know? Never, never picked one up, never played one. I've just, you know, ads and I've seen things and I've mm-hmm. always, I've always wondered the practicality of it. I've never Man, asked another artist. Polarizing though, are they? If you look on the, not so much anymore, but when it because they were, it is the Acoustic Sonics, right? They made them like a, a couple decades ago, and then they brought them back Think for so. this run. And when they brought them back, I mean, every single Facebook page and gear form and everything was a bunch of people like, "Wow, I can't wait! I can't believe the Acoustic Sonic is back, and this is awesome!" And then there were so many other people that were like. I cannot believe this abomination is back on this planet. And I'm like, man, it's not that serious. It's a guitar. If you like it, play it. If you don't, don't. We'll be back after a quick break. Blast off with Space Vacation, the musical, as the Bloom family from the bright yellow planet takes a wild, weird, and wonderful intergalactic summer vacation. With original songs and stellar comedy, their trip goes delightfully haywire. Fun and adventure for all ages. Space Vacation the Musical on all podcast platforms now. Subscribe today. Agreed. It's all about it's all about taste of the individual. Yeah. What's the strangest instrument you've ever played or know how to play? Ooh, I'm a, I'm a killer spoons player, dog. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, dude. Okay. You ever heard of the jaw harp? Yes. I cannot play one. I've attempted. I've attempted to. My dad's best friend growing up was a master musician. He was a dulcimer player, but he played a lot of different weird instruments. Mm-hmm. And I was like four or five, and I remember him getting me a jaw harp and trying to teach me. He was an Appalachian. 
Oh yeah, well I'm sure I can mountain, put that together from the mountain jaw dulcimer, harp. the jaw harp, ragtime piano. I mean, the dude, brilliant musician, and I remember him trying to teach me it. And I don't know where mine's at. I I still have the original one he gave mm-hmm. me. So you know, it's just the the standard just loop with a yeah. And I think I actually learned how to play uh, Blackbird. Oh, you can <laughs> Blackbird. <laughs> Dude, I couldn't even get that thing to make like what could be considered in the realm of a note, let alone play a song with it. Like that is awesome. It was either that or here comes the sun. Either way, that's rad. I mean, this was decades ago. Mm -hmm. I'd have to find it and see if I could still do it. And I I just remember because all right, hit pause, go find it because I got (laughs) I got to hear Blackbird on the jar. Not we're not doing it recording. Okay, off mic, off the record. All right. Nice try, though. I am. I am not. I am here to interview and answer questions. I am not here to attempt to play horrible music. I had. A, I had somebody message me last night. And we were talking through it, and they were like, "Hey, man, how come you don't ever play music?" And I was like, "There's three very simple reasons why I don't play on in front of people. I have a tempo problem. I have a melody problem, and my instrumentation is awful. Those three things are kind of off-putting. So, and what was it? Your instrumentation is awful. Awful. As far as as far as what anything. Like, like you're just not good at, I'm not good, man. Here's the thing. Todd Snyder has all those three problems. Just do it. Yeah, Todd Snyder is the brilliant writer. Though. <laughs> I mean, he is a genius. He's but, a salesman. But put that aside. No, I'm not doing it. <laughs> Come on. I like asking questions and sitting in my chair over here, sir. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. I guess if, if you weren't doing that, I wouldn't be here doing this. So I appreciate very you. Very true. Thank you. I really appreciate what you're doing, Aaron. Thank you. What is the strangest conspiracy theory you subscribe to? The strangest one I subscribe to? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That you actually believe? Like uh, anything. All right. Are you ready? Let's get weird. Maybe this is just because my, my dad was very, very old. He was born in 1929. Okay. And uh, lived in Texas his whole life. I honestly believe that Lyndon B. Johnson had JFK killed. Ooh, I just saw something on this the other day. Okay, so you're not the only person that I've heard say this before. There is several people, and I want to say I saw like a Vice piece on this the other day. Maybe it was Vice. I don't know. I'm not fact-based on this. Um, I've never done any research into this. This is just something that I've seen come up over the years. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracies over JFK's assassination, hundreds of them. And the fact that the Warren commission never came up with anything, Mm -hmm. anything. It's highly plausible. It is. And I feel kind of bad saying that out loud because like, I don't want to take somebody's death and turn it into something that I play with in my mind. Right. And like, it doesn't change whether I'm right or wrong. It literally doesn't change anything. Mm -mm, No. And so, you know, that's the only reason I feel kind of comfortable saying it. Um, but I don't know with, you know, with the, the tie-ins with the mob and stuff with, um, Oswald being assassinated in the way that he was like, I'm just saying it's possible. It, the, to me, the dots get connected very easily. Um, I don't know anything really about it. I definitely wasn't there. I was born decades after it. And it's just something fun to kind of play with every now and then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Um, but like I remember being a kid and my, my dad wholeheartedly believed that conspiracy theory. So okay. maybe that's also a little bit of why. But I remember being a kid. Nurture, and, yeah. Yeah. And he just, he just told me, he was like, Linda B. Johnson, that JFK killed. I'm like, I want to look into that. That sounds no more because that is that was the first time that I had heard something that was like so opposite, I guess, like of what we had been taught about it as kids. Because I was pretty, you know, decently young whenever he brought that up or he's, you know, I think that that's the case. And I was like, I had never really ventured out into really thinking opposingly about like this. I thought was a set in stone historical event. And you're telling me that there are things out there that I, I haven't learned about that they didn't tell me about all these mob connections with Ruby and stuff like that. And so then I got to, that was when I realized man, when my mind was freed, your eyes were opened up. <laughs> my third eye, the third eye. Yeah. Have you um, ever been to Dealey Plaza or down to the, the LBJ ranch? I actually haven't been to either of those places. So Dealey, I don't get out much. So Dealey Plaza, you would be surprised. You're just like driving right around the corner from Deep Elm, and you're like, oh, wait, that's the school book depository, and there's the X in the middle of the road. That's Dealey Plaza right there. Like right there. Wow. I mean, I don't just, know, maybe I have been. I think I remember seeing the depository, but from a, a different, like, like I wasn't there. You know what I mean? You were but a couple I blocks saw, away. Yeah, I was a few blocks away. That's the closest I've been, Deep Ellum area. It's pretty close. It's like closer than most people can like imagine. It's like when you tell people that you're in the stockyards and you're also downtown. Yeah. They're really close. (laughs) They are. We're just talking blocks. Man, I don't know like city geography at all. That's fine. You know, I just, I'm from, Clyde has like a couple thousand people, you know, I, I don't deal with neighborhoods. (laughs) <laughs> you know, but I, bet. I don't understand geography on that scale, but I bet I could drop you off at a county road anywhere within 30 miles of Clyde and you could get us home instantly. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm like, Oh yeah, I know where that, I know where that barn's at. Okay, you could cool. drop me off in the middle of a field somewhere and I could get you back out there. I'm that way in Henderson and Navarro counties. Okay. You can well, just, is that back from around where you're yeah. from? Of course, can area. Okay. Cedar Creek like area. You can pretty much drop me off. I mean, there's a few places I don't know, but I've run a lot of those back roads in my life. Oh, I'm sure. There's a, there's, there's an interesting subculture. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, the difference between urban and rural city living and country living, what we would mm-hmm. consider. I think it is a vast difference, but with a lot of commonalities. Um, I think, I think, I believe, I'm not saying I'm right. This is just a thought. I think people who grew up in a more rural environment are easier to get along with than people who grew up in an urban environment. We'll be back after a quick break. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. I get that, but it also... Like for you, I get that. I'm sure it depends on who you ask. I'm sure. That's why I said it. This is my belief. Yeah. 
And I totally get that. I'm probably going to have to cut that burp out. I tried to silence it as All much good. as I could. Or hey, just, man. you know what? Don't, don't take that marker away. They get, they get to hear every bit of me. It's all good. Um, but I'm put a maybe there. Yeah. Put a maybe and then scratch it out. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I definitely get it. There's sometimes whenever I run into people that are like business people in Dallas or deep into Houston and they come up, especially if I'm playing a show or something and they come up and want to, you know, and they talk to me, they're like, Hey, it's great. And then they go off into a conversation about what they do in their daily life, which is fine. That doesn't upset me or anything. I love talking about like learning people, about yes. people, but sometimes it's just like, what planet do you live on? What planet am I in? Like, Whoa, the differences. Yeah. The differences and commonalities. I think the human connection is an interesting thing. And I think we have so many avenues to reach that nowadays that. All right. Hot take moment. Hot take. I hate that term hot take, but here's my hot take. <laughs> I think we have the ability as a society and as a people to be more connected than we ever have ever at this very moment and going forward. But I think we're also more divided than we've ever been because of that. Oh, absolutely. And it's not necessarily because of that. Because if it was just we were more connected, then it would make sense that we would be less divided, that we would understand people. But another part of the ways that we're connecting now is so many elements of connection are also taken away. Mm -hmm. um, you can connect to somebody in the very literal sense now, thousands of miles away, super easily over Facebook or whatever you want to. And you are technically connected to that person. But whenever I sent you a message on Facebook months ago, had never met you, had only just heard your name a few times, we were connected, but we're not connected like we are right now. I can see the way that your eyes are moving around the room. I can see the way that you're moving your head in agreeance or disagreement with me. Body and language. I know that if I say something that you wholeheartedly disagree with, you can't just not talk back to me. Something is going to happen in return of that, whether you True. actually disagree with me or you just kind of shrug it off or you get angry. You don't have to worry about that online because if somebody gets angry at you online, whatever. And if, you know, they don't want to talk to you, they can just not talk to you. And so it kind of takes so much of the actual connecting away from connection. And it makes it so easy to just look at people like objects rather than something you interact with. Okay. hundred percent agree. And you said something that kind of triggered something. So a thought that's why my eyes dart around so much. That's my, th my thought. Oh yeah. I was, I was not like trying to call you out on it. No, I was no, just, just I know, there's no camera here. I have to set the scene. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, thank you for setting the scene because that is 100% the way I do this podcast. I've turned down more Skype or over the phone interviews than you can mm -hmm. imagine just because I say, nope, it's gotta be in person. Yes. doesn't have to be in my living room. I prefer it to be because I think that helps set the scene when you're across the, the dining room table from me. It's I'm welcoming me the welcome table, if you yeah. will. Okay. So you said that I think, and I don't know if this is a polarization or what I think a on social medias, whatever platform you want to consider that you're always selling the best version of yourself. Oh, not yeah. the truest version of yourself. Yeah. Two different things, I think. 
Secondly, I think you're only getting, like you said, you're going to know the surface of a person, not the person. Thirdly, a hundred percent agree with the body language, the interaction. People have become comfortable people, persons, not naming any groups or in general, this is generalization, get more comfortable saying things via a communication that is not a verbal in front of a person that they wouldn't say because of backlash. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. A hundred percent. That's kind of one of the things I was, I was getting at, but, but you nailed it on the head. Same, same perspective, different wording. I got you. Yeah. I hate to say like, Oh, everybody's a, a keyboard warrior and that's it. They're just not, nobody's scared of each other anymore. We shouldn't be scared of each other. Yeah. You should. But be. the fact of the matter is, you're not going to say those things that you're going to say online to somebody's face. Just period. It's a tale as old as time or as old as the internet, I guess. Which is pretty old. I was around in the days of IRC. Internet relate chat rooms. Yeah. Chat rooms. We had them called IRC in college. This is pre-MySpace, pre-Facebook. This is when we had bulletin boards. You would go and you would talk about things. You'd have bulletins and you go into chat rooms and you would chat. Ooh, backslash this topic. I want to talk about Ford Mustangs. You know, the craziest one of all of them that's out there right now clubhouse. I know. Right. I tried to get into it. I couldn't, I got into it pretty heavy during uh, the beginning of the lockdown for pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Spaces, I think is what it's called on Twitter now. But Clubhouse was the first one yes. to utilize the technology. That is a true chat room. And when I tried to explain mm-hmm. it to people, they were like, oh, what is it? What are you talking about? And I was like, no, you have a host, you have guests or speakers, and then you have listeners. It's a freaking virtual interview show. And they were the coolest things ever. Really? Me. I, like I said, I, ne- I never really dove into it. People tried to really get me, like really tried to get me to do the clubhouse thing, but I had so much going on back in the fall of 2020, I yeah. think is when that got big. My, my world was in the process of changing. So I was like, I don't need to get on this. You don't need one more Where thing. I love the idea of it. And I do know a lot of people who've gotten a really good, really good things out of it. But it felt like every time I would just look at it, it was a bunch of people hosting rooms trying to sell you themselves or something and kind of which i mean granted, that's that's let's talk about is the music business for a reason that old adage but man if i can't like am i gonna go on this app and have somebody try to sell me what they do for artists or what they do for venues or am i just gonna hop back on instagram i don't know so let me tell you my experience of getting on the clubhouse. Please do. I'd love to hear a positive experience. Get my negativity out of the way. So we, I, I went on there for the same reason everybody else did. Was to connect, meet people. But here's how it usually ended up late into the night. Me, Thomas Mooney. If you know Tom Mooney. Oh, yeah, dude. Charlie Stout. Paige Gregory. I don't know if you know who she is. I know who she is. Yeah. We would be in a room. Justin Ross. There, there was, um, uh, uh, Riker Hall, Marissa Bennett, 
there was about 12 people. There was a guy, uh, Josiah Whiteley, Whiteley, Whiteley. I cannot believe I'm not remembering his name. He's a musician from up in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. And then there was another photographer from like Saskatchewan. And then there was a DJ from uh, Great Britain or from Sussex. We would all get on there and all we did is we just bullshitted for hours. And then, and then we would sometimes, this is terrible. I can't believe I'm going to say this. And then we would go into certain chat rooms that we thought were complete bullshit, like some like way out there topics. And then mm-hmm. we would just troll them. Nice. I'm so glad that that happened. And then we would go back, then we would go back to our chat room, our private room. And then we would all talk about it. I mean, literally that's what we did. That's awesome. We would hop into these different rooms. You know, you'd be in a different yeah. room. And then as soon as you saw somebody, somebody online, you'd like ping them. Hey, you know, let's start a room over here. And then mm-hmm. two people start a room and then you'd open it up to your friends and then they would bring people over and, and it, it ended that way every night. That's awesome. Two things on that one. I don't know that I ever joined a room just because the titles of the rooms were so off putting to me. Oh, we did that on purpose. A lot of times. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) it was, it was people trying to be too professional about a social media platform. But the second thing, wrapping it kind of back around a little bit, the flip side to like, you can say whatever on the internet without repercussions kind of thing. You know, nobody's going to punch you in the face. That leads to some really awesome comedic content if you want to go around and troll some people. Oh, it does. It's incredible. That's like the one good thing the internet has ever done for society. It's let us be jerks, but in a funny way. Because nobody gets, as long as, you know, I always say a joke's not funny if somebody gets hurt. And uh, trolling people can be really fun. We never did anything with malicious intent. Of course not. I wasn't saying that you did. It was was more just, hey, do you want to go into this room and like, Pretend like you know what you're talking about and see if they buy it. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, that is. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That kind of stuff is gold. And it was great. But again, the people I named, you can just imagine what would happen in Mm -hmm. that circle of people and the different personalities. And it was fun because we would pop in and out of rooms. And uh, I mean, it was like literally somebody would host it and we would just leave the room open for like eight, nine hours. And so whenever you would pop on, Kim Brown would hop on there sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would just have different people would just pop yeah. in there and we would just talk about whatever. I mean, just like the most random, I think for us, especially the people that were used to being, okay, let's get, let, let's dive, let's dive a little deep into it. All right. Uh, into something here. The music industry, and I'm not going to say the Texas music industry, we're going to call it the independent music industry because that's what it is. Um, there is a very tight knit form of relationship that you bond with people who are in the industry. Mm -hmm. You are accustomed to seeing certain people, not in short, not in big chunks of time, but in short, small little bites, you get accustomed to knowing that every April, if I go to Melody mountain ranch, there's going to be a solid 80, 90 people that I know that I may only see two, three times a year. Yes. And I have to make the most of that opportunity while I'm there. And I think there was people I got used to seeing at mags. There's people I got used to seeing at this, at that. And I think when we were locked down, the routine that we had built, we needed that communication. And I think Clubhouse was such a brilliant way to have that verbal communication. Cause yeah, I get that. You can text with somebody and it doesn't have the same 
impact on you as hearing a person's voice. Absolutely. And it was almost as if this is people that I'd have been around a picnic table with outside of a venue smoking mm-hmm. cigarettes with. And really I'm in godly Texas sitting on my porch Charlie Stout would have been in Arizona, Tom Mooney's in mm-hmm. Lubbock, this photographer's up in Canada, and it still felt like we were all sitting around the same picnic table, just BSing. That's cool. That, that's really good. Uh, I'm glad you got that out of it. I've never had like the necessity for that, not for the, uh, for the connection, yes, but to really like have those conversations all the time, you know, like... Uh, I don't know, man. I usually find myself getting more out of talking to people who aren't in the music industry sometimes. Agreed. You know? And uh, sometimes I like to get away from it. And I think I was so scared that if I really dove into Clubhouse, I would just be overwhelmed a little bit. I can see that. The, the It's like with anything else. You have to curate your experience. And you were able to curate your experience in that because what was cool is you had a host, you had speakers, you could be invited to speak, but you could decline. Yeah. And I think also. Oh, I hit that decline button every time on that app. I would just go into rooms and there were sometimes I would just listen. Mm -hmm. I may not know a single soul in there, but just listen to what people said. And I think it's because I'm a people watcher. I learned so much being a people watcher. Um, It's almost uncomfortable the amount of people watching I do, uh, venues, eat out to eat dinner. Like I like to just observe what's going on. Oh yeah. And it could be something as simple as watching somebody be seated at a a table in a restaurant to a conversation. That's a little too loud next to you and you can't help, but listen in. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of what that allowed you to do. Still have that again. I could be completely full of shit. That's just my opinion of it. That's how I took it. But I get what you're saying. And I love having conversations with people outside the music business. This just allowed me to, like I said, talk to a photographer who lived in Canada. Yeah. Who had no connection to what I do here. You know, at that time, it was just a producer for a radio show. It was interesting. Human connection, I think, is a, is a very vital part of what we do. As it really, it's the most necessary part. Well, I say that coming from a songwriter's point of view when you, you as a songwriter as well, uh, I'm talking to Aaron as the songwriter, not the podcast and radio guy. Right. To me, the human connection is the most essential part of what we're doing. Keep going. I don't know what else. I don't know what else to add to that. Um, that was, that was my statement. No, I'm with you. Uh, (laughs) okay. All right. I got some follow-up questions now. Because now, okay, now you're, please we're, do. we're peeling the onion back a little bit. Do you write exclusively for your own therapeutic needs? Do you write for empathetic needs or is there a healthy balance? I know that's a deep question. It is. Um, it's usually, if it's anything like that at all, it is therapeutic. Okay. Um, that's the only time I really feel something like that when I'm writing is whenever I like have something heavy on my mind, heavy on my heart. And I really need to get that out. And I think a lot of that is why I have a lot of saddish 
songs, sadder songs, you okay. know? I can I've never been like the party song person by any means, and I'm I'm okay with that. I live with that every day and it's great. But uh, a lot of it is definitely just needing to get something that I am feeling off of my chest. And not even a need to. It's just I know that that's something I can do. Right. Like, I can deal with those emotions any other way. Uh, and in productive ways as well. But I don't know. The writing is just something that I have. And they sort of play on each other. I don't write because it's how I get my emotions out. And I don't just get my emotions out because I feel like I have to write. It's they, not, it's not yeah, cyclical. It's not, yes. It's just, I have these emotions and experiences and I also happen to be a writer. Let me see what I can do with those things. Okay. I'm with you now. hundred percent with you. I got you. So one, one need we'll say feeds the other need a little bit. Yeah. And you having can. an audience Helps with that. So to me, I almost don't really connect those. If that makes any sense. Yes. I don't. I don't necessarily need. No, I'm, I, I, I don't. I don't need the audience when it comes. You know, I'm not thinking so much about the audience whenever I'm writing or anything. And when I'm on stage, I'm not thinking about the writing. Okay, so two standalone different aspects. Yes. Okay, with you 100%. So that explains that explains a lot about your style and your thought process. Um, what would you say your biggest accomplishment in life is? My biggest accomplishment in life? I, I really think getting Deadbolt done and out, writing that, recording that, producing that, engineering that. To me, that was the biggest sort of like, accomplishment in my life i can sit back and look at it and say wow i did that and my second biggest accomplishment is that everything i've done after that sounds better than that okay that i'm still continuing to learn you're 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 uh, growing there's growth yes, that there. i can look back and see to me that's like something i can look back and see that i've accomplished every day i can look at something i did any amount of time i can look at something i did five minutes ago and be like wow i'm not I'm better than that already. Yes. I think a lot of people mistake growth. All right, let me back up. Let me back up. I think a lot of people mistake in music. If an artist has a sound and they stay in that lane, mm-hmm. they mistake that as repetitiveness and don't value growth inside that. Because you can grow yes. and sound similar. You can. And then at the same time, I think when a artist, a musician, maybe steps just aside from where that that lane, if you will, that imaginary lane is, that they mistaken that growth and that experience as a, a failure. Yeah. You you can't win, you know? It's uh, it's so funny. Like you said, if you stay true to what you've been doing, people are going to say you're not changing it. I know you're doing the same old thing, washing your feet. And if you change, everybody's going to be like, oh, you sold out or whatever. You did this. It's not as good as it used to be. You just can't, to me, you just can't think about it. I mean, I know I only have the one record out, so I really don't, the record and the one single. So I don't have too much to back up on my own experience about that. But the way that I see other writers doing it, it goes back to what I said 
you can't think about the songwriting when you're dealing with the people and vice versa uh-huh. because you got to do that for you, man. Yeah, 100%. It doesn't it doesn't matter what people if they want you to stay the same, don't. If they want you to change, don't. Absolutely. It's about you. Love it. You got another one you want to play for us? Uh yeah, absolutely. Before I just get like crazy into more questions. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so this is a, a newer song and it should be coming out. It will be coming out sometime this year. I don't know when this podcast is airing, so it will probably come out before this song, but who knows? Probably. Yeah. I'm, I'm about four weeks out. So I always, I always like to tell people time is not linear when you record a podcast because I keep seven to eight in the can at all times. Yes. And it always is. It sounds silly. I mean, because there's a lot of things to go into. I mean, I may have an artist or a guest come on here, and I have to, hey, let's let's record now, but let's hold mm-hmm. six weeks. Yeah. Or I may have one that I feel better about. Hey, let let's the the melancholy thought process that I go through. Mm-hmm. This one will complement this one if I put this out first. <clears throat> that makes sense. I totally get that, and it's worth it to put that much detail and thought into it. You know. If you're going to be recording it anyway, like let the time that it comes out be a part of the thing that it is. Absolutely. <clears throat> so this is one of a couple of singles that I've got kind of in the tank, you know, recorded and ready to go. The first one is that duet with McKenna Kozowski hanging on to Halos. Yes. And that will be the closest to this podcast airing, I'm sure. Uh, we don't have an exact date for it yet. We just got the album work uh Pretty much done. And I believe that was episode <clears throat> 58. So if you want to hear that song, you yes. can go back and listen to the uh, live uh, first week. It wasn't the first week we recorded, but it was the first week I released of the uh, Off the Record Wednesdays. You can hear that song on there in hour number two. Yes, I was about to get into that. Please go listen to it there because I'm not going to play it here. Uh, because we were talking about the magic of a song earlier, and part of the magic of that song is McKenna and I both doing it. Yes. It's uh, it's based around pretty much like letters to our respective parents. You know okay. what I mean? As two people. And that's part of the magic of it. I've done it live myself, and it, it just... It's missing something. It's missing something, which McKenna's amazing, like. Agreed. <laughs> That's a lot to be missed. Agreed. So I will not uh, make y'all listen to me do that by myself. I'll instead give you this song. It's a single I've got coming soon. Just a Jordan Tyler Haynes single called Room 31. Room 31. Let that sink in your mind. When you leave me lonely When you tell me goodnight Straight down the hall Up the stairs to the right I'll leave the latch open I won't turn out the light I don't know what I'm feeling But I feel like I'm petrified Did I cross 
night in room 31 It's as cold as the stones of the Ozarks in autumn is the winter's first snow And the taste of the water couldn't quench not one inch of what I desire Will you take me there Oh, like the river Downward well I flow I don't know what I'm feeling But I feel like I'm petrified Did I cross that line? Oh, you can let me know If you'd bring me to my knees tonight so much that's got a lot of uh, a lot of emotion behind that and it's the uh life imitates art kind of a thought process yeah. maybe um obviously i can tell there's a lot of uh inflection in the way you perform that so there's generally where there's smoke there's fire uh, i mean yeah which i like to think that about all my songs really but definitely in that one uh that, that song is just pure emotion you know i, I didn't really think about it too much when I wrote it and that usually turns out pretty good when I don't have to. Yeah. It just, uh, I don't know. It sounded like I was feeling to me as far as the, the chords and, and feel and whatnot. And so I just ran with it and I was like, whatever I'm feeling, I'm just going to say that. And there we go. Awesome, man. Thank you. Is music a passion or an obsession for you? It is an obsession and, uh, Yeah. Uh, almost a necessity. Okay. I literally could not do anything else. I'm capable of doing anything else. And I truly believe that. Okay. Uh, really, I, I feel like whatever I really wanted to do, I could go out there and absolutely kill it and be super successful. Music is just, it's a choice. Would you say it's ingrained 
in like your what you are, your being. It is now. It really is. Uh, if I didn't have music at this point, I would not know who I was. Okay. I get it completely. Thank you very much for sharing. So looking forward, you talked about the new singles that you've got cut and the, the work that you've been doing. What is, what is the next three years hold for you? Not, not just musically, but life in general. What's the next three years? <clears throat> Man, is it weird to say that I don't really think that far ahead a lot of times? It's not. Because I really don't. And I think mostly of what I want it to hold musically. Um, I don't know. That may be the first time I've peeled back and thought about that myself ever. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I've got a lot of good relationships in life, you know, obviously with McKenna Kozlowski, but also so many friendships inside and outside of music that have just been so good for me in the last couple of years. I just want to see those grow. You know, even if I move somewhere uh, that's not Clyde, I still want to uphold those relationships and just watch all of those grow. And that makes That's sense. My biggest, my biggest thing in life, really, for the next couple of years. I get it. 100%. Thank you. <clears throat> What's the biggest time waster that you think that occupies your life? YouTube. <sighs> Let's dive you, into it. You know that thing about music being an obsession that we literally just said? You know how much music-related stuff is on that app in 10 and 20-minute increments that you can just sit there and and learn? I love learning about music so much that it's almost a fault. Is it more um, like skills learning or is it like watching performances? It, it's skill learning, technical learning. Don't get me wrong. I love watching performances, but the crazy part is I don't see that as a time waster. I see that as something I need to be doing. Whenever I pull up a concert on YouTube, it is because this is what I need to see what's going down. Because if that was great, I can pull from that. Yes. If it wasn't great, I can pull from, you know, I can learn, okay, maybe don't do that. But uh, to me, that's actually one of the most important things that I do. It's a, it's two sides of the same coin. Um, But, from the technical learning side of things, it's just so much stuff that doesn't, not that it doesn't apply to me, but I could probably be using my time better than learning about uh, the wiring of pickups or guitar pedals. Yeah, but if you're working on stuff and you're, you know, you're being the, 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 the amateur at home with you, I mean, that matters. I mean, that, is, that is true, and it does matter. And it's not to say that it's all a waste of time, but I definitely could, uh, you know, read an article or a manual in two minutes rather than watching a 30 minute video on it, but I enjoy it, man. And it, a lot of it too, that you don't get from just reading about these subjects and you don't really get it from like, <clears throat> or you don't get it as much sometimes from like a, a lecture on these subjects is every time I hop on YouTube and I see somebody talking about pedals, they make pickups, they make guitars that they work on or the way that they produce music. There is so much conviction and love for what they're doing every single time. Yes. They love it so much that they want to put it out there for people to see how they're doing it. And that just draws me in, man. That keeps me held tight. And I'll sit there for two hours and watch this dude talk about guitar pedals because he loves it so much. Not because I need to know what kind of circuitry was in a fuzz face. 
Okay. I get, I get what you're saying. Uh, for me, it's rewatching the performances I've seen before. Okay. That's my time waster. Uh, maybe it's uh, Isabel's first time on Austin City Limits. I'll go back and watch Whoa. that and, and like dissect it. I don't think I've watched that one. I need to. There's really, so there's the first time he was on there, and then there was the episode, the Southeastern episode when he just released mm-hmm. Southeastern. That one's really good. Man. All right. Well, we got some time wasters coming. Or for, you know, I got some stuff to learn coming up. Also, there's an episode of Austin City Limits, and I'm going to butcher this. Guy Clark, Rodney Crowell. I'll find it and send you the link. Please do. They're like sitting in a circle, like around like a, they've got to set up like a a, a living room, a couple mm-hmm. couches, and they're sitting around and they're just song swapping. Oh, dude. Dude, Guy Clark puts on a FNA clinic. Oh, every time. A clinic in songwriting. And I mean, he's not sitting there with slouches. He's sitting there mm-hmm. with like- yes. And he puts on a clinic. I may have seen, I think I've seen clips from that, but I don't know that I've watched it as a whole. Start to finish. Watch that one. And there's okay. also one that is uh, Guy Clark is on the end. And, he, and this is towards the end. He's sitting on the uh, stage left, right if you're facing the stage. And Steve Warner's on stage. Okay. I'm not sure who else. I can't remember. Another one where it's like, Okay, these guys know what's up. And also, and I will catch hell for this, Pink's concert from Rio, the one right before the pandemic. Oh, yeah. I will watch that thing. if it, Even if it comes up with my suggestions, play, and I'm going to watch the whole concert. Nice. That's my guilty pleasure. That is awesome. Listening to Pink. That's awesome. That's weird that's people a, out. That's a good guilty pleasure to have, though. People will be like, Something, talk what? about Talk about incredible performances, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Killer every time. Blows it out of the water. You talk about somebody who owns presence, mm-hmm. being, power, mm-hmm. just watching that over and over. And I can just yes. like, oh, this is so good. That The aerials, the acrobatics, all the, the whole thing. Because as much as I like to go and sit in the listening room and listen to an artist and their instrument, there's something about a performance that, that is all of that encompassing. It's really cool. What is your first musical memory? Not like the first time you played music, but the first memory that you, as a core memory that you associate with music. I don't know which one of these is uh, the oldest, so I'll give you both. Okay. But everybody on my mom's side of the family, mainly her brothers, uh, they all would play, most of them would play uh, bluegrass, uh, and they all had bluegrass instruments they had a country band back in the day it was lackey's brothers band and uh yeah i mean just every family function was just full of music i mean there was no way to escape it um and i just remember being like a little tiny kid and my uncle holding a guitar and making chord shapes and telling me to strum it and i was that was it you know that's all it took and I was like, whoa, okay. And I wasn't really playing it, but I was making the noise happen. That was pretty rad. I'm sure that was mind-boggling to you. It was. It's not I, just beating on a guitar with no sense of it. but Yeah, no, it wasn't like that. It was just getting that, getting that feedback. You know, when I hit these strings, I get something in my ear. From my, from my hand to my ear. And... Man, I connected with that. 
and that was really cool. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, the other one, kind of goofy, but I was in like kindergarten, and we were doing some singing program or whatever thing, and uh, I asked if I could play air guitar on stage. If I asked if that was allowed, the teacher was like, of course you can do that. Yes. And so that was my first guitar performance. I was five years old, air guitaring it to like some old Elvis tune or something. I was trying to think of, <laughs> I was trying to think of like Suspicious Minds or something. I, I, I That's heard like a, did I hear the start of an Elvis impression? Oh, of a really good one? Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll listen to the next song I got for you here. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good Elvis or not. That's just my version of the Elvis. Right. You nailed it. Well, well, you, you nailed your Elvis. I'm not my saying you Elvis. nailed the real Elvis. I but nailed you, mine. You nailed the Aaron Bentley Elvis impression. That's man. where it's at. Um, so I have a really cool memory of, and this is in recent one. This isn't like a, a, a core ahead of that. Getting to go to Sun Studios. My wife and I went oh. over there six, seven years ago, five, six, seven years ago. And actually doing the the guided tour and then getting to go into the studio where they cut all those, you know, amazing performances. And when they, when you're in there and they close the door and they do the playback of like, you're a fly on the wall listening to, you know, the three of them just sitting there talking or the four of them, it was, uh, Johnny Cash, Elvis, uh, I just went blank. Anyway. The, the Million Dollar Quartet. You hear the Million yeah. Dollar Quartet in there, and they're just talking. Like, you can tell this is like after they'd all kind of moved on and they just went back. Chills. Because you're in the room, that's the piano. And the microphone is in the corner that was the mic that they all used. SM58 or whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it was. Uh, and you're just like, all that happened here. Yeah. Here. This is where all that music was made. That's the control room. This is the same freaking panels where the cigarette smoke went up into mm-hmm. it. This is the walls it reverbed off of. And you need to do the pictures with Elvis's mic. You know, they're bringing out white glove and you get to do the picture with it. Oh, yeah. Have you ever been there? <laughs> no. Okay. I haven't. I'm enjoying hearing this so much, man. Um, so it's a, it's a, you walk into it and it's just like a little like soda jerk kind of place in the front and then they've got the, the, the store like the you know you get the sun the t-shirts and the merch and all that kind of stuff and they get it upstairs which is the museum where there's got all kinds of cool stuff in it but what most people don't know is obviously you can go rent out the space and record there there's been several artists independent artists who have done that but there's a drum kit in there mm-hmm. the drum kit was left by u2 when they recorded rattle and hum they okay. left that drum kit so if you go in and you want to sit down at that drum kit, that was the drum kit that you two recorded Rattle and Hum on. Really? Uh-huh. It just lives there. That's that's so cool, man. It's just there. And the guitars that are in there, they I mean, they can't even tell you who else played them, but there's just a wall oh, of yeah. every kind of Gretsch and Gibson. And, I mean, every kind of just like, you know, Les Paul Goldtop, you know, mm-hmm. whatever year it is. And then there's like the the... the that money green Gretsch that everybody always, you know, lusts yep. after that's in there. And they're just looking at all these guitars and I'm like, Oh, I'm in heaven. And they're just, but that memory, just the, the feel, the vibe, the energy that was in that room. Oh like yeah. You, it's still you, there. You, you feel it. You, you yeah. know, you're in the presence and it's hard to describe. I think, um, for anybody who is a true music fan, whatever lane you fall into, Versus the casual fan, I think you get that. Like when you walk in there, you you, you get it. 
Um, I had that same feeling getting to stand on the stage at the Ryman. Oh, no, I wasn't there for any reason. It wasn't like for any purpose other than we did a tour. Right. Yes. But you stand on the stage at the Ryman and you look up at that stained glass in the mother church and you're just like, you know what else happened here? Like, I mean, you just like, you, and I don't know, people have different beliefs. I, you know, I don't know, but I could feel something. There was, there was an energy there. There was a, something uh, tangible almost in the feeling there. It's hard to describe those kind of memories, those things. I love hearing those kind of stories, but I wanted to share that with you. Dude, thank you so much. What have you ever been to a place that's kind of held some of that mystique for you? And maybe it's not even music related. Hmm. I'm trying to think of one like specifically, but I really can't right now. It's a, it, it's hard. Cause I think places sometimes hold different value people, you know, influence it. Obviously um, there's other ones. It's like uh, the first time, this is going to be a silly one. First time I saw a concert at Billy Bob's people argue, oh, the sound of Billy Bob's is awful. And I am. Yeah. It's whatever. Whatever. First time I saw a concert there, Pat Green, Ragweed, I don't know what it was. Uh, just being in that room, that's a huge room. Yeah. That, sh- that showroom is massive. I've actually never been in there. Come on, man. I'm about to I make know. you a list of places to visit. I know. Um, I told you at the beginning of this thing, I don't get out much. Well, let's get you a bucket list. Right. I need one. Uh, I think a place that really did that to me and I wasn't expecting it that much, uh, playing green hall. Okay. Come on, man. Green hall. is Like I've been, I've been on that stage a couple of times and it's like, I don't think it'll ever get old. And it's so fun talking to people about the building. Cause if you look at it, like it's just a building. It's not, it's not great. There's no air conditioning. It's no. so hot that no, yeah, the, the, you have to hot. go around to the bar. It's kind of convoluted to get in and out of the, well, they have the sides open now and that's, that's awesome. But that was one of those times I just stood in the middle of the stage and just kind of looked around, which I was, I wasn't front manning in that. And that was with Garrett, but I was supposed to be not in the middle of the stage, but I just stood there for a second. I was like, hold on before I set my stuff up. Like, this is where we are. This is what we are about to do. Green Hall. And it's just so awesome to be in there. I get that hundred percent. Texas dance halls. I love them. They're all, I mean, it's, it's a tale as old as time. To How many Texas have you been to? Halls. Not a whole lot. Um, I know Copeland dance hall is okay. incredible. Uh, we don't have to get into the whole, like, is the inn haunted or not? Because it probably is. Probably so. Um, but I like to not think about those kinds of things in places where I also have to stay. Oh. <laughs> so, Are you, do you not like ghosts? I get, I get, man, I don't, I don't. You, you believe? Uh, I try not to. Okay. If that makes any sense. You know what? Like I want, I want ghosts to not be real, but, uh, Especially listening back to the conversation you had with McKenna a uh-huh. while back. Oh, whenever, yeah, whenever the two of us are in the same room and every now and then, uh, she'll bring something up about it. And I'm like, you can only go this far into the conversation before I start getting freaked out, like past the point where I'm like, okay, I can, my brain can't put connections together for that. Please stop talking. 
I seek out some of those places sometimes. That's awesome. We stayed in the old part of the Minger Hotel one time mm-hmm. across from the uh, Roosevelt Suite just for that reason. I was like, if this is the haunted floor, I want to be here. I want something to happen. Nothing That's did. Right. Nothing did. I wanted to see something. I wanted like a little bit of, hey, how you doing? Oh, yeah. I'd be scared shitless. I'm not going to lie, but I still wanted something to happen because I was like, eh, let's stay here. Green Hall is such an awesome place. I've, I have, I can't claim to say that I've been to all of them. I've been to a lot. Uh, Green Hall and Lukenbach are two amazing. Oh yeah, dude. Lukenbach is just, it's a, it's a different kind of spirit that's there and energy or whatever it is. Lukenbach just makes me feel so happy. It should. There's no, anybody should just be able to feel that. Yes. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. You know, hopping on. But both of the stages there, the the outdoor one uh-huh. and the dance hall stage, hopping on those and setting up gear, it's like, it's never feeling like, wow, this is so historical and awesome. That was Green Hall for me. At Lukenbach, I was like, this feels so good. Feels I like am home. so happy to be setting up this gear and yes. lugging it through the heat because, you know, it's Lukenbach. We're just going to hang out at Lukenbach. Have fun. Have you ever been to National Hall? I have not. It's in Lake Worth. Sounds like a place I need to check out. It's very different. If you don't know what's there, you don't know what's there. Okay. Um, but it is an actual, it's an official on the registry of dance halls in Texas. Mm-hmm. And the stage, the way it's designed, the curvature of the back of the stage is designed to push the sound out to the back wall. Okay. And it's just a really cool spot. Uh, another one, uh, Schneider Hall. I know of it. I haven't been there. Uh, and I've talked about this a couple of times. If you watch uh, the the videos that Jamie Lynn and Courtney and all of them did the kind of the old time, you know, like when they did a welcome table and everything, uh, looks like they're all kind of like in twenties and thirties dress that is recorded there. It is the only, and I, I may say this wrong. It's the only privately owned dance hall that's on like in somebody's property. Really? You, I didn't know that. Like you, you're driving out of town and you turn like cross over a cattle guard gate in, in their front yard dance hall. Wow. And it is spectacular. Man, what did you say the name of that place was again? Schneider. Schneider Hall. Yeah. Uh, and I've been to... Is it Schneider? Uh, Coupland? Yeah, the Co- Copeland Dance Hall? No, the, the, I'm, I'm uh, thinking of a different one. Oh. It's above... It may be a different name I'm thinking of. It's uh, like on the second floor. The dance hall is above the restaurant. Whoa, what? Singleman Hall. I hadn't heard of that. That sounds cool. Singleman Hall. So it's like you walk in and it's mama's restaurant is on the ground floor. And the upstairs is the dance hall, which makes load ins pretty difficult. Oh, I'm sure. But uh, if you, okay, if you go watch the being gone video by Jamie Lynn Wilson, it's filmed there. Okay. I'll check that out. Uh, but it's really, it's a cool setup. So it's like you come up the stairs and when you get to the top of the stairs, the stage is immediately to your right. Like you're on there. So you have to walk across the dance floor to the bar, which is on the left-hand side. But there's also these little like elevated spots from the bar and on the opposite side from the stairs running down, like a six inch elevation. And it's just got tables and chairs. It almost looks like a jury booth. Really? And then you got the dance hall in the middle. It's pretty sweet. Dude, dance dance halls are prime, prime places. Um, And I brought this up. In a long roundabout way, uh, have you heard the news about what's going on around Lukenbach? I have not. Uh, so there is a developer that is trying to buy up the land around Lukenbach 
and make it a subdivision. Well, he just simply can't do. Like, how how much is on the table? How how much do we have to uh, buy him out for? Uh, so there is a petition right now. If you go to the uh, Facebook page for Lukenbach, uh, there's kind of like a little bit of a thing going on about it. And I feel bad that I didn't go prepared for the, uh, <laughs> wasn't oh, prepared for this. I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. As well, as you're doing this. Uh, yeah. So uh, right now there is a big uh, concerted effort, and there's going to be a couple of shows coming up there. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, to waste some time to bring this up. Uh, but there is a petition out there, and it's long hashtag, it's hashtag long live Lukenbach. And it is basically people are just doing their best to uh, – yeah, so Saving Country Music did uh, Pending Development in Perils Lukenbach, Texas Name and Spirit. So if you go back to the middle of June, June 7th, there's an article about it, and there's kind of a big uh, a big push to uh, really prevent this from happening because it is, one, we don't have a lot of historical sites in Texas. I mean, we do, but we, we have a lot that we've lost over the years because mm-hmm. of this. Dance halls, especially dance halls closing down and um, the Texas dance hall society is something to look into. If you've got a couple dollars that you want to donate, that's, that's always yeah. anything that, that, that preserves history, especially musical history in Texas. I think that's a big one. And I think everybody should take the time to slow down and go visit these places because they're not just touristy spots. There's meaning behind it. And if you're a music fan, Taking the time to go see a show at a Lukenbach, at a Green Hall, yes, at a Copeland, or at a Singleman, just go search them out. Oh yeah, you'll learn so much about these small Texas towns because they're not all in like, Lukenbach. If if you tell people where it's at, it is on the way to Fredericksburg, yes. leaving Johnson City. You turn on a county road and you're driving, and then there it is. It's just there. Yes, Green Hall's in the middle of the green, which has become a giant tourist thing. Yeah. But, but it's there. It's still very much its own thing. Oh, 100%. You know, like when you go just crossing the street. Well, that holds a lot of importance. Everything changes. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing to do is get my tickets, go eat at the grist mill, and then walk yes. back up. Yeah, I think, honestly, you know, I take it back. Forget all like the historical stuff. My favorite thing about playing green hall is that they let you eat at the grist mill. They give you a meal over there. It's awesome. Where's your favorite place to sit? Sit in the, at the, at the grist mill. I like just going out back and sitting. I I like to be in the open air, the open air out back. Yes. If you go in and go immediately to the right, like when you walk through where the, the mill part was and you get to where the tables are and you go to the right almost to the kitchen and go straight through there is a set of tables that's down the back stairs in the back corner and it's the lowest level you can get closest to the river mm-hmm. and there's two tables down there highly recommend going there if you can get those two yeah. spots I say, this, I, I say this as an expert every time we get anywhere remotely close we go eat at the grass mill one because I always order the large onion ring yeah it's a plate. I know your friends can't see my hands, but it's the size of a basketball tower of onion rings. It's great. Everything there that I've had is just awesome. Food is phenomenal. And then you're right by the river, so you're watching people float by. Mm-hmm. Huge thousand-year-old oak trees are covering. Yeah, man, that's where it's at. Then you turn around and go order a beer at Green Hall, and it's, it's awesome. 
You ever seen the movie Michael? I have not. You need to watch it. Okay. It's just a, Michael. Michael. It's a '90s movie starring John Travolta, where he plays uh, Michael the Archangel. Okay. Uh, the Archangel. It's part of its film to Green Hall. That's pretty cool. Yeah, sure. Put that in my list of things that I need to do. That's a must. What is your favorite movie or TV show? Anything that is centered around Texas? I am a Lonesome Dove. Not Lonesome Dove fanatic, but I've just always dug Lonesome Dove so much. The first one? The original? Yeah, I mean, all of them, but... Streets of Laredo, Return to Lonesome Dove. Yes, I have seen all of them multiple times, but I mean, the original Lonesome Dove was just so good. You can't beat it. Uh, I wish, and maybe one day I will take the time to actually sit down and read the McMurtry books. You need Uh, to. I have not done that, which is funny, because like, if I've got the time to watch Lonesome Dove, I've got the time to read the book, too. They put everything in there. Uh Uh-huh. And... I don't know. It was just so awesome. It I have so many great memories tied to it. My my dad loved it, and uh, we would watch that like monthly. It felt like or any time it was on TV. Yes. So you know, it was just like six. All right, six hours of our day are set aside. Lonesome Dove Marathon is going to be on, and I think that's my biggest reason for liking it so much is the memories associated with it. Memories you made the core memories. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, mine is a little different. Uh, I love Lonesome Dove. I've seen it a gazillion times. I have very few DVDs left here. That's one mm-hmm. of the ones. Yeah. Because uh, every once in a while, I'll just throw it in. Um, have you ever heard of the movie Giant? I have not. Older movie. You might want to look it up. It, it, it takes place in West Texas in Marfa, and it was filmed out there. Uh, like 60s, 70s. Uh, and speaking of McMurtry, uh, Texasville, Last Picture Show. Last Picture mm-hmm. Show is a must. You have to watch that. Yeah. Um, but for me, the movie is called Fandango. Came out in okay. the 80s, and it is Kevin Costner. And it's kind of about the seminal road trip after yeah, college. I think I've seen it. It's hilarious. If nobody's seen it, you've got to watch it. Yeah. Fandango. It's great because they go to dance the Fandango yeah. at a friend's wedding in Marfa. And so it's like, it's the, that's it. Yeah, I think, I think I've seen that. That's great. I, I'd have to see it again to know. And there's been a couple other ones, but that, that's like one of the ones that there's so many good movies about the state of Texas and that's history involved mm-hmm. in it. Um, you ever seen the movie Bottle Rockets? Maybe. I'm not sure. That, that's kind of an obscure one. It is Luke and Owen Wilson and it's old, okay. like much older. And it was very low budget. Pretty funny. You got to watch it. And it's kind of filmed around the hill country. But also um, Death Proof. Mm-mm. Haven't seen that one. Okay. I don't think. Quentin Tarantino film. Okay. And it's filmed around the Austin area because I want to say at the very beginning, one of the opening scenes, they're at the chili, the chili parlor in Austin. I mean, maybe that was where we're at or home slash or someplace like that. They're there. And it's really cool. I love it when you have those little, those ties into like different movies like that. You seen hell or high water? No, I have not. Wait, the movie or the, the, the movie. Um, it's the, the two, two brothers, Robin Banks. Yes, I have seen yes, that. Yes. yes. That's another, I was, I've been sitting here trying to remember the title of it. Yeah, no, no, um, I know. I know exactly what you're yes, talking about. Very, very good film. And that's, you know, one of the more modern ones too. A, a lot of times when people think we're going to make a movie based in Texas, they want to base it like in Eight, the 1800s. This takes place in like the seventies or eighties, I think uh-huh. I can't remember exactly, but just a few decades ago, it's supposed to be around post. If you've been to the panhandle, you know that it's not, but 
And they got the they filmed it in I think New Mexico or something. But they got close. They got close enough, you know. Uh, Obviously, that? they couldn't film it around post because there's not enough there to film. But uh, that's such an interesting yeah. place. That's <laughs> how is. I always I know when I'm in West Texas because mm-hmm. the smell of yeah, you can close your eyes and know. Yeah, ah, petroleum. I'm here. It's weird. Like you just mm-hmm. know it. We uh, stopped. There's like a little flea market in like an old grain building out there. Oh yeah, we stopped. Oh yeah, we stopped a couple years ago, and I got this really cool piece of art that I'll show you. That's in my uh, office right now. That uh, we just we were like, hey, let's stop. We're on the way back from Lubbock. We went to go see your brother. I think uh, mm-hmm. Summer's brother lives in uh, Lubbock, and we were driving back. And I was like, hey, let's go over here. Let's go check it out. And it was this really cool piece of art. Picked it up, and I was like, this is going with me. It's going around. I knew exactly where it was going and went straight in my office and hung it up. And I was like, you belong right there. That's awesome. It's really cool. I've always wanted to stop in there, but, but I never have. It's the, it's the big, like old building. They've got the, the Sonic flyer hung uh-huh. on it. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> that always cracked me up that they used like that half of that building, which is a ginormous building Huge. is also advertising space for Sonic. Like, I love that. Yeah. It's like right off to the uh, other side. Like you, if you're heading South, it's to your left across the road, yes, which is yeah. right, right there off the main road. Yeah. Right. As you're coming up into town, you see yep. it off to the right. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's actually a series of multiple series, of big buildings like that. I don't mm-hmm. know if it was like green storage buildings or just like warehouses, but they're huge. Yeah. And, uh, man, I found some cool stuff in there. Uh, I'm, I like to go occasionally, you know, junking or whatever you want to call it, thrift mm-hmm. shopping, man, I can spend some money in those places. Oh yeah. I'm less of a thrift shopper and more of a junker. Um, There's a difference. There is a difference. Like McKenna is a thrift shopper for sure. And usually I'll let her go thrift shop and she'll let me go junk around. I don't know what the, what the verb it's is. Junking. That. It's junking. I'm going to go junking, you know, and look for what, what piece of garbage I can bring home and nobody's going to get it. But uh, you never know. Yeah, you really don't. So maybe we'll take a trip up there next time we head to the Panhandle. It's worth it, I promise. So, Mr. Jordan, I want to tell you thank you, first of all, for coming and doing this and making the drive over here. I always greatly appreciate getting to sit down and visit with artists whenever they come do this. Uh, it never seems like that we have enough time in the conversation, but uh, I know we'll have many more to come. Oh, yeah. The whole premise behind me doing Off Mic, Off the Record was for the 13 years that I did live music production for Texas Red Dirt Roads. People would always ask whenever we go to commercial break, hey, when the mics are off, what are you talking about? Well, we just did for the last hour and a half. That's right. That's what happens. It's live. There's no, there's no magical, you know, everyone thinks, oh, it's musicians or it's artists or it's that we're just ships passing the night and they're playing catch up. You're trying to get a six hours or six months worth of life into a six minute conversation. And that's a very important time because that's very precious time because most artists don't get to share a stage because they're going in opposite directions. Yes. And so that was the off mic off the record portion came from my favorite way to consume music over the 13 years. I was blessed with being a fly on the wall in several rooms that I probably shouldn't have been in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got to hear the infancy of songs. I get to hear songwriters uh, performing a song, the bare bones stripped down version of the way that they intended the song to be wrote. Not in a negative manner that the produced version isn't the same, but the original intent. And I think there's something to be said for that. And I've uh, always asked the guest uh, to close me out with a song that is that off the record tune for them. It's the back of the notebook, bottom of the guitar case song that's maybe hung around and hasn't found a landing home yet, but someday will. Yeah. Cool. Can I play one that hasn't, but I think it's about to? Like, I, I just recently decided. Has it been this, released? This, it hasn't. No. It, no. It counts. And it may very well be like another year before it is. 
Uh, absolutely. Dealer's choice. That's why I leave it open-ended like that. Cool. I love it. I wrote this song many years ago. I think I was in in high school, late in high school or in college uh, sometime. And so it's been at least four or five years since I wrote it. And I never really enjoyed it at all. I didn't enjoy showing it to people or playing it uh, because I always thought that I was using way too much hyperbole in it. I thought I was really not so much reaching, but to me it never felt real, I guess. A stretch, if you will. Yeah. And uh, it it felt like something that could be in reality, but it didn't feel like it, it could be my reality, I guess. And then I lived a little bit more of life. I lived a few more years. Uh, like I said, I was still a teenager when I wrote that song. And uh, a few months ago, I listened back to myself doing that song, and I realized things do kind of get that bad. Like, all of those things that I put in that song could happen to the same person um, just from everything that I've seen. And so I've decided at some point I'm going to put this on an EP, just kind of me and a guitar. As far as right now, that's the plan. And who knows where it's going to go. It could change. But uh, this song, I think, is finally starting to find a home. But it's been at the back of the notebook for a long time. Awesome. It's called Happy Lie. Tell me that success is built upon mistakes. Guess I could stand to make a couple more. Cause my patience is bent, like steel about to break. Collapse the roof and smolder on the floor. And we'll both sit in silence at the records that I've made. We'll get back up to fix it one more time It takes a single tear To put out all the flames And we're still left here wondering why I guess that's just a drawback Of living in a happy life I never could pretend To be something I'm not Oh, I strayed from those rich boys down the street And I'd never make tuition But the coaches had a spot Scholarships in football filled my dreams And those cigarettes and whiskey They'd never slow me down that trophy and that ring they both were mine till I woke up in the ER wearing handcuffs and a gown cause my heart was broken that GTR could fly I guess that's just a drawback of living in a happy life
kids are laughing down the hall and dogs bark in the yard. I just have to listen for a while. And I'll never understand why I took these things so hard. These days all I do is smile. There's bills stacked on the counter. Bills I have to take. And I can't afford them both half of the time Standing by the window With sunshine on her face Is the reason that I still get up to try I guess that's just a beauty Living in a happy life I went there. Thank you. Good. I was trying to get you there, man. Yeah, I went there. That's a uh, imagery was extremely, extremely vivid there. So thank Dude, you very much. Thank you. That's it cool. is not to interject. It no. has felt so nice to uh, to sit here. So many times, whenever I play live, especially with the band and even acoustic, like I feel like I just have to to hide behind the rock and roll. Sometimes, don't get me wrong. I, the the three songs that I played today, I absolutely love. They're a joy to play live. But uh, I feel like so oftentimes they're the ones that are less heard because I've got, you know, songs like Half of Deadbolt or the, the next Kitchen Choir record I'm working on is such a rock-oriented project that, uh, you know, I don't, get just to, I don't get to just sit and be about the words all yeah. the time whenever I play. Everybody wants to hear me scream my lungs out and, and play blistering solos, and it's felt really nice to sit down and talk with you and get to, like, pick those songs that are really, like, it's all the words. There's nothing to hide behind. 100%. Thank you, and you're welcome. Which brings one of my favorite lines in any song up. I scream my lungs out, confess all my sins, uh, all my secrets, because if it don't sound like the radio, pass. Do you know that mm-hmm. line? What song is that from? I uh, this town is killing me by Caitlin Smith. Okay. Uh, Recently got into her music. I feel like I'm a little late to the party, but I'm gonna add that to to songs from her I need to listen to. Uh, the best advice I can tell you: listen to Startfire, uh, Starfire, start to finish. Put on Supernova, start to finish, and then go listen to uh, the B sides from Supernova, start to finish. Perfect. Find a time when you can throw some cans on, some headphones on. And just do it. Just sit and listen. Yeah. And it is a lesson in music perfection. I think I talk every third episode about her. Oh, good. <laughs> JordanTylerHaines.com is where you can find all the information about the links. Uh, I think you got a link tree on there where we can find your Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere that you consume music and also tour dates and information about what's going on. And what's the name of the studio again? Junk Drawer Records. Junk Drawer, junk drawer Records. Can't believe I just tongue-tied that. Do you have an independent website for that as well? No, it's just, it's a page at jordantylerhaines.com perfect right now but if you look up junk drawer records surely it'll take you to the website i don't mean i don't know how to do computer stuff but it's up there i just, just say just, words yeah just do, do a little do a little bit of research you'll, you'll find it 
you'll find it all. But definitely give him a shout. Anytime you see his name on a marquee, make sure you stop in, pay the cover, uh, shake his hands at the merch booth because I guarantee you it all matters. That's how we get these independent artists up and down the road, and I guarantee you that he will be greatly appreciative of it. Continue to get out, support independent artists, independent businesses, and thank you again, Jordan, for coming and spending time with me. Man, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It has been a blast. Until next time, friends, Aaron Bentley, Off Mike, Off the Record, adios. Off Mike, Off the Record is a Black Top Poetry production. For more insight into your favorite independent artists and all things behind the scenes and in between, visit blacktoppoetry.com. Our theme is provided by Austin Upchurch. Go check him out at austinupchurch.com. I'm your host, Aaron Bentley. And if you made it this far, you're either really bored or you fell asleep. Either way, thank you for your support, and I'll catch you next time. Adios. It's gonna be okay.